0: learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in health care related fields to keep you a beat ahead.
1: Good evening. This is Dr. Marilyn Singleton and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The world of medicine encompasses so many ins and outs that patients never see. As costs go up, patients need to be aware of the reasons and hopefully do something to keep those costs down for themselves, even if the politicians won't do it. Almost everyone in the United States, about 92%, has health insurance, whether it's private or government finance. But even with that, half of these folks have trouble with costs and 41% report having medical debt. 35% of adults have delayed dental care due to cost. Our teeth are more important than anybody thinks, thinks they are. But dental care is the most common service to go. Prescription medications are another culprit. 25% of adults either skipped a dose or cut pills in half to save money. With my special guests, who have knowledge of patients as well as policy, we're going to discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of what's under the surface with medical care. I have two guests tonight, which is great. One is Dr. Joel Strom and the other is Dr. Kenneth Schell. Dr. Strom is a practicing dentist and he also is a former president of the California State Dental Board. He founded the Dr. Joseph Warren Institute, a nonprofit designed to educate and motivate healthcare professionals to become leaders in the political and public policy debate on healthcare reform. Dr. Kenneth Schell earned his doctorate in pharmacy from the University of California, San Francisco, my alma mater. He has, well, should I say, 40 years' experience in clinical pharmacology (laughs) and pharmaceutical science, including overseeing pharmacy operations in many patient care settings. Dr. Schell also served as president of the California State Board of Pharmacy and on the board of directors as presidential officer of the California Society of Health Pharmacists. Welcome to the show, Dr. Strom and Shell. Thank you, Marilyn.
2: And thank you, Marilyn. Good to be back.
1: Okay. Well, I'm first since I mentioned it as far as a cost issue. I'm going to start with Dr. Strom and just tell us a few things about some dental health. A lot of people don't even think about it and how the mouth, so many people say the eyes, but the mouth. Is a real window to our general health. What are a few hints and tips and things that uh, even primary care doctors can find and get a patient off to the dentist, ASAP? I think the broad question there
2: is also how, you know, we have we see dentistry as being a one total profession and different and different from the medical profession or the pharmacy profession for that matter. Um, and that's a, that causes a, a, a loss for our patient care overall, that all the healthcare providers don't have a little bit more ability to work together. We tend to be in siloed from each other as opposed to working together. I don't mean in a way that we have to go into some big corporate structure, but there, the communication between all the different aspects of healthcare uh, work, uh, we just don't do a very good job in this country with that um as that's my lead comment uh as a dentist and most dentists don't do this to be honest you know we're trained to recognize potential systemic problems by looking in the mouth the simple exam that we will do we do on patients uh but many dentists are are working faster too busy uh there may be a a corporate type of practice which we can talk about later um but um, if you don't take a time the dentist doesn't take the time to look they're not gonna they're not gonna see anything so if you have a good dentist who's doing a full full-on oral exam just by looking inside the mouth we can screen for issues from sleep apnea which is tremendously underappreciated in the entire medical community uh, that, that means you not being able to sleep well through the night due to the inability to breathe properly um, you can see signs of Inflammation, be they from COVID, COVID vaccines, from dry mouth, diabetes, all these issues, even nutrition. I, I only one time, but I had one patient who had uh, vitamin C deficiency. So, with the disease called scurvy, which is unheard of in the United States of America. So, just to wrap up the, my answer so it doesn't go on too long, uh, a good dental exam. And then, conversely, keeping your mouth healthy, where you reduce inflammation in your body, will also help your uh, will help you be, be a healthier person overall.
1: Well, can you see things like diabetes or other things just by looking in the mouth? Well, I, I would say, you know, yeah, but by
2: looking in the mouth, we tend to, at this point in our in the evolution of medicine. When I look in the mouth, when dentists look in the mouth, we see signs that there might be some underlying problem, but we, attempt, we don't really ever diagnose the actual problem. So what we look for is if you have a mouth um, who, that it has is clean. You know, you have good oral hygiene. You're flossing and you're brushing. I know this is all very boring to the average <laughs> listener, but if you brush and floss every day, and your gums themselves still look red or bleeding or inflamed that raises a flag, which uh, dentists will then start to ask questions like, what medications are you taking? And Dr. Shell could probably address this in a minute or two when you ask him, but there are a variety of high blood pressure medications that can cause inflamed gums or hypertrophic gums, as we talk about, which then circles back and makes it more difficult for you to keep your teeth clean. So, so gums that are inflamed, when the mouth is basically clean and the patient is doing a good job on oral hygiene, um, that's when you raise the flag. Could it be scurvy from from gums? Could it be diabetes? Could it be uh, oral cancer? So all those come into play. So I would say that a good dental exam and seeing your dentist regularly when you're healthy otherwise uh, gives you an opportunity to hear from the healthcare professional, the dentist, the hygienist, the assistant, to see that, hey, something isn't quite right here. Have you talked to your doctor about X? And so I look at it more, I don't say at this point, unless we do salivary testing, I'm not looking at this as a diagnostic procedure, but more of a screening screening mechanism to help you get to your doctor before things get out of control.
1: Okay well thank you for talking about that because it's always been something that bothered me and and after reading these statistics where dental care is the first to go it it's kind of sad because it one thing that i had learned a long time ago was the gum disease it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing does the gum disease cause Heart inflammation or does heart inflammation just show that you have general inflammation in your body and so you also have gum disease? And uh, so it's something very important. Um, What is it? C-reactive protein can be up both in heart disease and gum disease. So these things are interconnected. And you know this because you practice and you're a decent human being that if patients are having trouble, talk to the dentist, tell them you're a cash-paid patient, and see if you can arrange something, because it's so important for your general health.
2: Yeah, and one last point on that is these are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, the body can, your mouth can reflect problems in your body, such as um, such as diabetes is a very Clear cut example where you have inflamed gums, bleeding gums, or more infections in your mouth or teeth. And can go the other way around where you have gum disease, and that is causing the, this, the higher levels of the blood markers for inflammation uh, that will cause you to have more higher risk of getting heart disease. So it goes both ways your point is is well taken We're connect, there's connections there and as time goes on we'll be able to better understand them um with definitive you know to say so i can say it definitively that, that there is a clear definite causative impact of gum disease on heart disease or vice versa i think we're moving in that direction we just don't know for sure yet
1: okay well thank you well i'm going to pop over to ken and talk about an issue that's been brought up there's a big article and i think it was the la times about medication errors coming from the pharmacy directly and in fact they talked about some law that uh, they're trying to pass that would make some sort of um, systematic reporting of these medication errors. And frankly, that to me, taking a pill is one of the biggest leaps of faith we can ever do. I take a couple of pills and sometimes I look at them and say, how do I know this is really what they say they are? Can you talk about medication errors, Dr. Shell?
3: Absolutely, Marilyn, and thank you for the opportunity. I, I think uh, in this world today, it's very different than when I came into practice in the 1980s, and I don't think anybody could have predicted uh, the technological advances in pharmacy and software that helps us to identify these errors, but no one could have predicted the incredible volume of prescriptions that are now generated that had <clears throat> In terms of what was available when I was a practicing pharmacist, medication errors are a fact of life. There's no question, and uh, pharmacists do make errors. The question becomes, what exactly is a medication error? And in the laws that are being uh, presented to the, uh, I guess, the Congress and other legislative bodies about how to regulate mm-hmm. and minimize these errors. And certainly it's something every pharmacy takes seriously. I know in California, the California State Board of Pharmacy does a a very good job at monitoring when pharmacists make errors, but we're so dependent on the public to report these things. Um, The errors can come in many forms. Some errors are very simple. Uh, They gave me the wrong medication because they pulled the wrong bag from the shelf or to put the wrong tablets in the bottle. Um, Simple error, if the patient doesn't take it, that's pretty straightforward. When the patient starts getting the medication, taking it, that becomes a little bit more serious of an error. Uh, Sometimes the patient reports some mild side effects, but sometimes it can be serious leading up to death. That's a very serious error, and that's something that everybody is very aware of. Other errors that people don't recognize are errors that actually happen before you get your medication that medication errors are often caught prior to them leaving the pharmacy. In fact, I'd say an overwhelming majority of medication errors that occur within the pharmacy are caught before they actually get out. So the question becomes, when you start talking about reporting errors, what do you report? Do you report only those errors that the patient had harm caused to them? Do you report errors that just got to the patient? Or do you report every single instance that there's an error? That becomes a critical piece in how we monitor this because you can see with the hundreds of millions of prescriptions that are generated in the United States, if there's even less than a hundredth of a percent of those errors, it's still a great number of errors. If you start pulling people off to report the errors, in fact, you have to investigate it first to determine, in fact, if it's an error, are you actually causing more harm than good? I'm not saying that you should monitor errors or report them, absolutely. Uh, some errors are systemic. They're errors because of the systems that we create to produce the error some are based on information that are not presented to the pharmacist or to the physician by the public, or errors that happen in the transfer of the medications from one pharmacy personnel to another, or errors that are just communication errors from the physician's office to the pharmacy. So we have a lot of issues with regard to errors. All of them are very, very important. I think this is something where there will be a lot of input, I think from all sides, but I would think the most important persons that could be involved in this discussion the actual public themselves. And all too often, like you said, you know, I look at that medication and how do I know what it really is? And we do so many things on faith. I think you can trust, but then you have to verify as well. So for the public, I think it's an important thing you have possibly one of the safest systems in the world. Uh, When you talk about medication errors compared to errors that are made by other areas in the public venue, medication errors are very very few having said that it's a personal thing when you're the one that gets injured and so don't ignore it report those errors to the board of pharmacy or go back to the pharmacy and just ask them what happened because sometimes they can fix those things right away and that helps other people in the public uh, public to minimize them from having the same error happen to them sometimes the pharmacy is not aware of those but typically every pharmacy in California has a quality assurance program that looks for things like that. If they see a trend or reporting of errors, then they go back and do investigations to make sure that these things don't continue to happen. But it's an opportunity for everyone. I think it's something that, I'm, I'm a human being like the rest of us are. I think it's a great goal to say zero errors in the future. Uh, I think as long as we have humans involved, that there are going to be some types of errors. Will technology actually make for less errors? It depends. Technology sometimes keeps us from being as sharp as we could be because we become overly dependent on it. And as long as we need to have humans in the system, I think technology is going to have to take a back seat because well, this humans is- have intuition. Well- Sorry,
1: I'm done. Well, no, this is good information because I think all of us have had that moment of, hmm, what is this? And did they give me the right thing? But knowing that there are things in place and, and compliance boards and all these things, they help. But again, like you say, if you're the person that got the wrong drug, all these things, you know, are of little value to you at that point but just knowing that there are things in place to help this out. When we get back after the break, I just want to mention one thing that I read in relation to this that I thought was a bit bizarre about pharmacies, and then we'll get into some other issues. So we'll talk about all that after the break. Right now, I'd just like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse as you know, we are always a beat ahead. I'd also like to talk to you about Cofix RX since we're talking about medications. This is a nasal spray that's mainly xylitol, povidone iodine, both of which are antiviral powerhouses. And I use Cofix RX, a squirt up the nose when I go out and public and, and in big places where I'm around a lot of people that I don't know, just to try to tap down on the viral load. It is cold and flu season, and we've got to do everything we can to protect ourselves. And we just have to think of RX kind of like an airbag in a car. It reduces the impact of the virus. And if you can catch it in the nose while it's uh, replicating and multiplying, and reduce that load before it gets down to your lungs this is a wonderful thing one of the best things i like about it it was invented in the usa and it's manufactured in the usa so what could be better than that so read about it we've got a little cofix button on our page click it on read a little more about it and see if it's right for you
0: How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with CoFix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? CoFix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. CoFix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. get heart healthy, go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with OxyPowder.
2: It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why OxyPowder is our number one seller. It works.
0: Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD, Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health
1: naturally. Before the break, I had one last question about medication errors and just kind of the back of the counter of pharmacy. A couple of years ago, they passed a law in california that prevented big pharmacy companies from having quotas of drugs pharmacists had to dispense and how fast they had to dispense it number one is that true that there are quotas and has anything changed in that
3: regard a very good question and The definition of quotas was a little bit vague, but the law was intended, and it was targeted more towards the larger chain pharmacies than other pharmacies to ensure that these pharmacies, which handled a vast volume prescription, that there was not going to be inordinate pressure from a manager to force a pharmacist to fill prescriptions at a rate that they did not feel safe. Uh, There are... Uh, there's not been any information that I've seen that has shown that there are actual quotas. There's some question, and I've seen some actual information that was brought to the board to investigate uh, claims of quotas by pharmacists. And those, med- those things are still being uh, litigated at this time. Having said that, um, there could be Instances where a pharmacist has been told you must fill X number of prescriptions an hour or to do certain types of activity an hour. And that puts the pharmacist in a very compromised place because if you fear for your employment, if you don't do this, you may be tempted to do something that your licensure should which says that you're there to protect the public. That is our job as pharmacists. And irrespective of what your manager may tell you to do or how fast he tells you to do it, if you're doing something that you feel is not going to be in the public's best interest, then you should not do it. I can tell you, not everybody may think that way and for good reason, but at the end of the day, California has started the movement towards, hey, there's only a certain amount of work a pharmacist can do per period of time. One prescription isn't like the other. Some prescriptions are fairly straightforward to process and dispense. Others are very complex. To put a quota on something where you don't have an average work unit is becomes very difficult. So California has done, and I think it's the right thing to do, to make sure that the safety of the public is paramount to look at what a pharmacist can do. And this not only includes pharmacists, but pharmacy technicians and clerks as well, that there's only so much much work a person can do in a period of time. And once you exceed that level of work, the quality of work goes down. And I think that's intuitive for everybody. But yes, California does have that law. It was put into place, I think within the last couple of years, Uh, I am aware that there are some um, things before the board to investigate claims of quotas that have existed. I know that there are other um, people who are claiming that these claims are spurious, that they're not true, that these are not actual quotas, but they're incentives. But irrespective of how you look at it, no pharmacist should put the public in peril based on what an employer says is a rate that they establish without investigating whether it's safe to work at that rate. Can well, I well, no. that?
1: oh and I just want to say what you say there applies to physicians as well. As we know with these larger companies taking over tons of individual practices and people are in these big systems. Physicians are given seven to ten minute visits and it's just, Racing people through and trying to race these things through is not in the patient's best interest. And Dr. Strom, you had a comment? I did. Um, maybe a question, but a, um, Dr. Shell,
2: when you were on the state pharmacy board, didn't you guys do a, a pass a consultation law that uh, was meant to reduce medication errors by speaking to the patients uh, a new new prescription? Uh, had to be accompanied by a an offer for the pharmacist to provide a consultation to the patient.
3: Yeah, actually, that that law had been passed back in the in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. But uh, when we when I was on the board between two thousand three and two thousand eleven, that mm-hmm. it became clear that this was not always being done. So the laws were strengthened to ensure mm-hmm. that for certain types of prescriptions, a pharmacist must consult with the patient. Now understand the patient has a right to refuse a consultation. They could not be forced to do so, but then the pharmacist had to make it clear that the consultation needed to be done. Uh, People were doing things that would minimize the ability of of the public to have access to the pharmacist. Uh, Those things were now uh, regulated and they were severely fined or, or there was discipline that was associated with those acts. So the pharmacy ha- pharmacy board has taken action to make sure those laws were strengthened. Uh, the public is in a better place. I think when you go to uh, any pharmacy now, it's you're not able to just go ahead and say, oh, "Now I'm waving the prescription," or the pharmacy technician says you don't want to talk to the pharmacist or put it in a negative light. So yes, uh, thanks for bringing it up, Dr. Strom, because I think that was one of the hallmarks for my time serving on the board. Well,
1: this is all very good information. And remember, folks, when you do get your medication, usually you've waited and you're in a hurry and maybe don't feel like, oh, I don't have the time to talk to the pharmacist. But sometimes after you get home and you have a question, then it's kind of too late, even though there's a lot of materials that come with the, the uh, drug sometimes you can't even understand those. And uh, so use this opportunity to talk to the pharmacist. We're going to shift gears for a minute because there's something else that's been in the news lately. And that's a big merger that's supposedly happening. Hard to know. There's about five insurance companies that control half of the health insurance market. And now there's a proposed merger between two of them, Cigna and Humana. And I'm sure everybody's heard, especially Humana, it's advertising on TV all the time. And Cigna has Express Scripts, which is a big pharmacy benefit manager. And Humana has Humana Pharmacy Solutions, that's also a large PBM. So this would consolidate the PBM market. And then Humana is big in the Medicare Advantage market which is the Medicare HMO. So, we've got these mergers and you know, this means less competition. I want to know from both of you, I'll start with Dr. Strom, what do mergers mean to medicine and healthcare? Are they good? Are resources combined is that a good thing or is decreasing the competition a bad thing? Dr. Strong? Well, oh, an over
2: my overall answer would be anything that reduces patient choice ultimately harms the patient, uh, not a hundred percent of the time, but I would say ninety percent of the time, If a patient doesn't have a choice to to take care of their own bodies in terms of health care, uh, that's a problem for me. Uh, philosophically, and also to me as a as a as a patient or a doctor. So when you consolidate and bring uh, different companies together in order to save money and all that, uh, you generally reduce patient choice. Now, I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say, because I don't believe it's a universal. I don't think it's a universal fact. In in dentistry, we have a. We've had many of these uh, practice acquisitions where large corporate entities buy a bunch of dental practices. And most of the ones you've heard about, like Aspen or Heartland or Western Dental or uh, Pacific Dental Services, there are a whole bunch of them around, that those uh, groups provide, uh, they provide lower costs. There's no doubt about that. Uh, And so in a sense, they they could increase access to care. But um, the issue is they've lost, the dentists there have lost their autonomy, which means you know, they don't have the right to make decisions that they think is, are best for their patients. So when you give up your ability to choose treatments with your patient, discuss the options, and have all the options in front of you, then you cannot be as good of a dentist or a pharmacist or or doctor of any kind. So on that end of it, I think it's a bad thing. On the other hand, there are, we shouldn't, uh, put all of, put all of corporate, uh, medicine or dentistry for that matter, pharmacy under one umbrella and just assume everything is the same because it's not. So there are many dental groups. I'll speak to dentistry since I, that's what I know about, uh, that actually maintain the autonomy of the dentist to practice clinically, to make the clinical decisions th- themselves with the patient. And those are lesser known. They are private equity, uh, entities, and they do create uh, profits in different ways for the for the providers and the owners of this big big these big entities. But you maintain your autonomy. So in short, I'd say that when you uh, fold different companies together, uh, if, if money is the prime mover and you lose your autonomy, then as a general generally speaking, I would say I'm not for that, and I think patient care will suffer.
1: Well, thank you, and thank you for kind of giving the other side of the picture that sometimes it can help, and being in a larger group can lower prices, because again, we started off talking about costs. But the loss of autonomy is really a problem. We see it with the physicians, and it it just seems to be getting out of hand. And uh, these private equity firms buying up a lot of doctor practices. Now the federal government is actually having a lawsuit. The Federal Trade Commission is suing one of these because they found that there's been several studies that show the prices go up, not down. Now this is with Mm. physician practices. So if... If it does turn out that the prices go down in dental practices, that would be a really good thing because that hasn't been the case with physician practices. Mm -hmm. And they're going across the board, anesthesia, cardiology, ophthalmology, radiology, even OBGYN. So it seems like it's never going to end. It does. You know, it, it is a, it's a pattern.
2: I honestly don't see how it goes back you know, I, I don't see how we kind of go back to the private practice where, you know, you go to your neighborhood dental office and you see the dentist and he's got a hygienist or she's got a hygienist and, you know, you get your cleaning done by the dentist. Those smaller kind of cottage industry dentists, uh, the way I grew up um, in dentistry, I, I, I have a hard time seeing how like you go back to that. And it go to me underlying the reasons for that is that the third parties, i.e. the government, Put so many regulations into the mix, and the costs go up so high that an individual owner cannot keep up with those costs. And so, for me, I in dentistry, just I'll stick with dentistry. Every time we pass a new law, every and in dentistry in California, I'd say there's at least at least a dozen new rules, regulations, laws every year that I have to. M- bring into my practice, train the staff, put up a poster and add another layer of cost. So when we talk about the increasing healthcare costs, um, private equity might be an answer to try to spread those costs. So your overhead is lower, but the, the, you know it's best to treat the cause, not, not, not treat the symptom. So if you're gonna treat the cause of this, to me, it's, it's the layers and layers up upon layers of rules and regulations from the federal government, the state government, the local government that adds cost to a filling. Let's just pick take a filling, for example, right? And the rules and the insurance companies and such. So I don't know how we fix the problem, but if we don't fix the cause, we figure out a way for individual practitioners to not have to pay the cost of all this on their own instead of sharing it amongst more people. I don't see how we get back to that.
1: Well, I, the, I think you're right in that there are a lot of regulations, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the medication errors and stuff, because we have to strike a balance. We've got regulations that are strictly for patient safety, and of course we need those. And clearly, I'd say 99.9% of people who go to professional schools always want to do best for the patients yes there's a few bad apples that are just psychos but for the most part um we're always trying to do our best and some of these regulations have nothing to do with giving excellent patient care when we get back from the break I'm going to talk to Dr. Shell about his ideas since he was involved with pharmacy benefit managers and, and on the corporate level that what's making these drug costs so high, do these mergers and buyouts and all these things affect the cost of drugs, and get his opinion on this sort of thing after the break. I'd just like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We've got our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa. You can hear Pulse every weekday at five with an encore at 10 p.m. and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning, all times Eastern. You can listen on our media player from any web browser, anywhere in the world. What I like is that all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. On the episodes are on lots of networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy. Bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. The other great feature about the show is there's a different doctor every night. So you, you won't get tired of hearing the same person. I'm on, on Mondays, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. We have Tuesdays with Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley, Wednesday with Dr. Peter McCulloch, Thursday with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan, and Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reisch. And remember, we also have nurses out loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So a lot to choose from, a lot of information And I'm sure you will not get bored.
0: Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. World class care from doctors you can trust Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you.
1: Before the break, I am going to tweak Dr. Shell and ask what he is feeling about these mergers and what this is doing to the pharmacy benefit manager market given the, the Cigna and Humana, what's that gonna do? Already these PBMs are under scrutiny for how they make money and how do the, the companies make money in the first place? People talk about the high cost of drugs. And one of the answers is a lot of money has to go into research and
3: development.
1: So I'd like you to go into all that. I've given you a big mouthful, but go for it, Dr. Shell.
3: Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Singleton. And you're right, this is a, a pretty big meal. But uh, I I would reflect on uh, what's happened to pharmacy in the last 40 years since I started practice in 1984. And I see what's happening in medicine and dentistry now. And I can only point to the fact that independent pharmacies are a dying breed. And the rationale for that is is pretty grim, actually. They cannot compete with the larger chain pharmacies. So you had these conglomerates of pharmacy and and certainly they do provide access in certain areas but in certain underserved areas and other populations that the chains aren't there the the small mom and pop if you will pharmacies cannot compete because they cannot purchase the drugs at the at the rates that the larger chains purchase drugs as a result the insurer is going to have to pay that pharmacy more or the pharmacy has to take a loss to provide that care to those patients in their areas. When those pharmacies close and nobody comes in, now that patient has to go a further distance. So when you think about economies of scale and is it okay to merge, I think mergers are not inherently bad. And certainly I don't think the intent is bad Having said that, the result may not be good. And I'm seeing the same thing in medicine and dentistry. As you start getting these mergers, the independent physicians, who I grew up with, by the way, an independent physician and a dentist, and now my children and their children are going to have to go through some corporate dental office or corporate medical office where you have X number of minutes to manage a patient in the dent in the medical office, or you have certain types of procedures that you do or you don't do in the dental office. I'm not sure that's great. Uh, With regard to the PBMs, I think that has been a hot button issue for healthcare, especially in the pharmacy space. Uh, I think the initial intent for PBM was to actually hold down costs, to make sure that fraud was minimized, that the charges were appropriate, that it was a single system for pharmacies to submit their claims and get reimbursed relatively quickly. I think those who have been involved in the PBM industry have extended that beyond what I think the insurers had originally had planned, and certainly there is now a lack of transparency as to how the PBMs actually work in their space. This also has resulted in independent pharmacies not being able to keep up because the PBM sets reimbursements rates, which saves the insured money, which ultimately saves the patient money. But now you're squeezing out that small guy who can't make it in that network because they can't exist on what they're being paid. And I know of pharmacies, and I've been involved in situations when I oversaw an outpatient pharmacy where there were medications that the pharmacy was actually getting paid less than what they purchased from the wholesaler. In the end, the person who's making the money is the pharmaceutical company. They are not being hurt by this. In fact, they're making more money. And all you have to do is look in your stock page or your portfolio. Pharmaceutical companies are goodbye. good buy. Is this good for the public? I think it depends. Some medications have become more available, uh, others less so. The cost of medications has gone up. No one will tell you the cost of medications has gone down in the last 20 or 30 years. They've steadily gone up and sometimes at a rate that makes it almost impossible for the public to access it without certain types of insurance. So are mergers good? I think in some cases, maybe. I think is the public benefiting from the mergers? Maybe on the surface, it seems that way, but underneath the surface, when you're seeing what's being lost, I think time will show that mergers maybe in the pharmacy space may not have been the best thing. I think it's a pattern that you're seeing in and dentistry, the independents are not being able to keep up and they're going away. What does that mean for the public? Lesser access, maybe in some communities. And certainly, I don't think you're going to see a, a reduction in cost. Your insurance costs are, costs are going to go up.
1: Well, this is an important thing. And I've always wondered about the whole aspect of R&D. We know it costs millions of dollars to bring a new drug to the market. And there's sort of an ethical and philosophical question that arises. How do you justify charging $500,000 a year for a medication, but it's for a rare disease? So would you have the medication at all if you didn't charge $500,000? And who's really paying the $500,000? I mean, this came up on a smaller level when there was the new Alzheimer's drug that really apparently didn't work that well and uh medicare raised the premiums because they said they were going to pay for it it was going to cost some exorbitant amount of money per year well the drug doesn't work so i think that's a dead issue but there's going to be another drug that comes out that somebody's going to charge a lot of money for where do you draw the line when is it too much to pay? And if you're the one with that disease that that drug treats, how, how do you say no?
3: And, and, and Dr. Singleton, I, I think that that is going to be a societal issue because where do you draw the line? Our, our current culture is to save everyone, to offer everyone the opportunity to extend their life through treatments that may not have been available. The fact that you can charge that much money for an agent per year, it it seems absolutely abhorrent. Having said that, how much did it cost to bring that drug to market? I'd say at the end of the day, some of these drugs actually start the development with the federal government, which is the people of the United States of America, and then the pharmaceutical industries will walk that forward, start doing the clinical tests and the trials and things like that and bring it to market. Absolutely, it costs a lot of money. No one's denying that. But at the same time, we're the only country in the world, well, maybe there's one or two others that allows for advertising of medications. What if you took that money and you use that to defray the cost of ha- developing the drug? Maybe Hallelujah. you could spend charge less. So I, I I I debate the whole the using the research component as a rationale for having these a, a monstrous costs of these medications. And again, when you consider the populations that they treat are very small, maybe that's in fact. I'm not saying maybe that's probably how the actuaries determine what the cost is. They look at the market very small. They look at what was went into bringing the drug to market very expensive and then you base your costs on that so it 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 becomes a federal issue now because it's the federal government the fda that has created the system that is very expensive to bring the drug to market why patient safety you want to make sure that new drug is going to not harm more people than it does good for so as the public We expect our drugs to be safe and effective. And I think your quote early in the podcast was very critical. Can I look into that bottle or can I get that shot and be assured that this drug is going to help me? This is what the FDA stands for, and they've done a very good job at it. But I think it's becoming clear that there's a lot of controversy within the ranks of the FDA when drugs, to your point, that don't appear to work, are being approved. How could that happen? How is that possible? And how much is that costing the people of the United States of America to bring a drug to market? We're paying for it, but it doesn't work.
1: Well, one of the things that I hate to say, and Dr. Strong can certainly comment on this as well, I think these agencies have been totally captured you look at the revolving door between the agencies and the corporations, the millions upon millions that spent on lobbying. You you hope that these people are governed by ethics and not their pocketbook or power, but we've seen people do stupid things just because they like the power. And it it's Really, it kind of saddens me because it even seems like the FDA, in many respects, obviously not all, can't be trusted. So, what do you guys think about the the capture of these regulatory agencies, Doctor Strom? Oh,
3: Doctor Shell, you go first. Oops. I I think the FDA can be trusted. I I don't I, I trust the integrity of the people that are in these systems. Do I fully trust it? Absolutely not. Certainly there is that lobbying component. You're absolutely right. And it does appear that there should be some mechanism to keep that from happening. Having said that, these people who are actually lobbying are at times providing information that helps to make the decision. But when you have an inordinate importance to the people making decision, and not all people are ethical or moral, now you start to question whether they consistently bring to market a drug that has not been tainted by somebody's lobbying efforts. And sometimes millions of dollars of lobbying is being put into play to help the decision to be made. And again, I'm not sure that, and in that fact, I can assure you that's a dangerous thing.
1: Absolutely. And what do you think, Dr.
2: Strong? Yeah, sorry, I was on mute. Um, Ken was quicker to the button than I was. Um, so I I, I do question a lot of the ethics of many people who in, in private in private sector and in the public. But having been a member of a bunch of boards, most recently an NIH panel, uh, it's more to, to me that lifetime of people the lifetime um, employees of the government tend to share a certain philosophy that's more public health oriented rather than individual practitioner or clinician patient type of orientation so I think the strong philosophy of the people within government number one this is one two points first one being the long-standing people in the government, the most well known, of course, is Anthony Fauci. I'm not, I'm not accusing him personally of doing anything um, himself. I'm just saying people like Dr. Fauci are in the government for so long and they're around so many public health oriented people that they look at numbers and not patients. So that's a big problem because while we need to understand the numbers, you know, you need to kind of look at at the paths or the graph that shows, you know, we're getting more obesity or less obesity or whatever we may not be looking at as a society, you know, we, the answers are not always applicable to everybody the same way. they're never really applicable to all patients because there's, there's no average patient, right? If we've treated patients, they're all different. So you can't really treat to the average. And so I think there's a huge public health philosophy in lifetime government employees the other thing is quite opaque um the whole system so opaque that to make change or to make the government smaller it's really hard to to explain and educate to voters and people that would vote to make the change they can't understand it simply let's just stick with the drug industry you know you say there's third parties in the drug industry people just kind of scratch their head and they they don't want to hear about it right they don't want to hear about the the percentage of cost to a drug they're taking, how much of that went to a PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager, third party type of thing. They don't really wanna, they don't wanna understand that it's too hard to explain. So when I talk about the board that I was on in NIH, which has a a long, long name, the National Advisory Craniofacial Research Council. you, you just say that name and people roll their eyes. They don't even wanna hear what's next. So it's very difficult to explain what that council did even though we control the entire dental research budget for the United States of America, for for the the, uh, research budget and the public sector. And that's a major responsibility for the people on that board. And those people on that board that were appointed, political appointees, actually were members, are members of the people who receive the grant funding from the same board they sit on. So those are kind of my comments. It's it's a complex (laughs) government, it's opaque and the philosophy of overriding philosophy is one that looks at things as numbers and, and, and patterns as opposed to, you know, this patient needs this kind of drug and why we should be supporting this kind of drug. So I may have a different, slightly different take than Ken did, but I, do, I agree with everything he said.
1: Well, on that note, we're going to have to end because can you believe that our hour has run out and there are so many other things I wanted to talk to you both about. So we'll have to do this again. Will you promise me you'll come back?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, especially when when, he, when Dr. Shell agrees with me, it makes
3: it all the more fun. Uh Yeah, I was just about to agree with you, too. (laughs) Well,
1: thank you so much for coming on the show, and we'll talk again.
3: Thank you. Happy New Year. Thank you, Dr. Singleton.
1: And I'd just like to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. Now, if you have any questions on anything you've heard on the show or for the host or the guests, you can always email us, first names are fine. The email form is right there on the page that's advertising the show. And the other thing I'd like to tell you about is AmericaOutloud.shop. This is our shopping site. We've had it for a few months and I love it. It's been very successful. We've got books written by the folks that have come on the show and other books of interest. We've got products from the wellness company, Cofix RX is there. And we're so simple here on America Out Loud. If you put the code out loud, you can get a discount on many of these products. So as I say all the time, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.